0: This New America NYC event took place on October 29th, 2015, and is titled The Armor of Light, a social cinema screening, and features Abigail Disney, Lucia K. McBath, Rabbi Andy Bachman, and Eric Rubin. How does a country get here? And one of the things that's interesting to me was that toward the end of that war, um, Charles Taylor had maybe six thousand guys, and the opposition had maybe six thousand guys. I mean, the war had just ground on and ground on. So they had this core of people, and it turns out, so let's round it up to twenty thousand. Twenty thousand horrible, horrible psychopaths can take a nation of three and a half million people to its knees if they are, if the AKs cost twenty five dollars a piece, you know. And um, I started really caring then because. You know, it, it it does connect back to this country and our domestic policy on guns and our advocacy in this country on the part of the NRA to just promote the widespread ownership and callousness and casualness about them. It, it does trace back to us. You know, what happens in Liberia starts here in many ways. And what we export isn't just the weapons, it's the mythology about the weapons, you know, the romance of the weapons, the idea of the weapons. So. So I have, you know, really thought and thought and thought about how you change this dynamic because it's a really hideous, broken, paralytic political dynamic. You know, I push hard and then you push really hard the other way and then I push harder and it's just never going to end differently unless somebody throws a wild card into it. And uh, so I wanted this to be the wild card. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I wanted to find a way to, to mix it up, to get liberals and conservatives to come off their traditional thinking and positions and come together and really think this through on The basis of our impulses that are better and larger and above politics
1: Reverend Shank you um, You as 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 the film shows were a conservative you are a conservative voice in in the community in a lot of ways Um, and you took great risk in speaking out on this issue how has Um, how has the the, the message been received amongst the evangelical community thus far?
2: It's been mixed. Um, You know, of course, I've had uh, resignations from the organization I chair. You saw in the film Evangelical Church Alliance. We've had clergy actually resign their ministerial credentials uh, over this. Only a few, but enough to to uh, register. Uh, And I've had some uh, donors to my organization who have announced they will no longer support us financially. And we're a relatively small nonprofit. So uh, they've been donors of consequence for us. But on the whole, it's been delightfully surprising. And the numbers of pastors for example and and if uh if you're not familiar with the way evangelicalism is structured we don't have bishops or archbishops we don't really have a hierarchy so the pastor is really the supreme leader for lack of a (laughs) right I mean, you know, that's it. So uh, pastors carry enormous influence and uh, and authority. And uh, we've had a number of pastors tell us in private, I'm with you on this. Very concerned and willing to talk about it off the record, behind closed doors uh, at this stage. but. I've, I've had more of a positive response than I anticipated. So uh, my pessimism has turned just slightly towards optimism. And Rabbi
1: Bachman, um, you have been very involved in the New York area on gun violence prevention. And um, your path to this area is somewhat interesting. Can you tell everybody about how you've gotten involved the, the reasons and what, um, what, what, where your energies have been spent. Sure,
3: definitely. Um, first of all, I just want to recognize uh, a dear friend and uh, colleague, Leah Barrett, who's the executive director of New Yorkers Against Gun Violence. Where are you? There you are, Leah. How are you? Um, uh, so, um, I met Leah just by happenstance. Um, I grew up in uh, Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin. I've been living in New York for about 26 years. My grandfather, whom I never met, was murdered in 1939 by a man with a handgun. Um, I grew up with a deep sense of uh, fear of a weapon um, and a moral teaching that one shouldn't touch a weapon, um, unless as as a son of a father of a World War II veteran, unless one was uh, defending one's nation. Um, so that was ingrained in me from my youth, and it made, when when I, I met uh, Leah for the first time, and she asked me to be involved as a clergy person with the effort to, um, to pass uh, reasonable gun laws in New York, it was an easy answer. I, I was really moved by the movie, I must say, um, Abigail, um, and I was... Uh, transfixed by your journey, Reverend. I really was. Um, and um, I found myself thinking about the tension, the, the, the directorial decision to place faith at the center of this issue. Um, you know, while watching the movie, I looked at the Declaration of Independence, I looked at the Constitution, I, I, I was so moved by this notion that, that, um, that there is this religious belief that one has the right to own a gun, though the Constitution makes no such claim to it as a religious belief. Your struggle was a religious struggle, uh you could hear it in, I, I just thought it was just so profound in the way that you showed people's voices and a credit to both of you for working together. I'm really sorry that Lucia isn't here yet, um, so I don't know what to say right now, except to say that I, I think I probably share many people's perspective. I was really interested in the representation as a rabbi, obviously as a Jew. Uh, the, the way in which, as I watched the movie, uh, Lucia ended up becoming this beacon uh, of light saying, claiming Jesus as nonviolent, um, I thought to me was the turning point in the film, which then set the challenge to <laughs> Not to put you on the spot, no, but set it, the you? challenge to you, He's been Reverend. Put
0: on a lot of spots. He's kind <laughs> yeah. of used to
3: the spots. And so, I guess if you don't mind, Eric, uh, I'm interested in hearing from you about that moment because I thought it was captured by Abigail so beautifully of a kind of a calling out of okay, so who is Jesus anyway for us Christians? And I, as a you know, as a person watching it, um, I was really interested in that moment. I'm, Curious is a fellow clergyman. Who? What? What that moment was like for you?
2: I appreciate very much your rabbinical <laughs> insight, um, <laughs> because you're precisely right. That was the decisive moment for me, and I did see Lucy as an instrument of God, as a messenger. Um, I I I think of. Abby and Lucy as angelic figures in the literal sense uh, <laughs> in the literal sense because uh, they they did bear a, a message to me that I needed to hear and and lucy's uh experience was immediately um was immediately uh, connected to my world because she speaks the language of faith. And that is very important in the world that I inhabit the, the language, the, the style of delivery. You know, we have in our evangelical parlance, you know, we call it a testimony that a person bears a testimony of faith and experience. And that's what she did. And the fact that it occurred in a garden was not lost on me, even at the time, because some of you know there was another decisive moment in a garden. Uh, and and for me, it, it was embracing uh, what I came to understand was the will of God in this matter. But but Lucy also, uh, also dealt with a... a a technical theological question which was the issue of idolatry Mm -hmm. and it's the reason i addressed it in my sermon that in our respect for the second amendment we were talking about second amendment issues we have to be careful that we don't violate the second commandment in other words substitute the penultimate for the ultimate the earthly for the heavenly something else for the divine will. And and that was jarring. Abby had prepared me for that, but Lucy closed the deal. Uh,
3: I, I have to say, I mean, forgive me, uh, but may I just go? Ahead, I, I really please. want to say something. I, 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 I want to ask. Lucy's uh, here. Uh, uh, Lucy is here. Is here. I want to just, you're joining us mid-conversation, and you're an incredible person, so. I wish I was
4: incredible enough to. uh... I think you're on. I wish I was incredible enough to be able to open the, like, parting of the Red Sea for all of the traffic. (laughs) (laughs)
2: I think you parted some waters. <laughs> yeah,
3: <laughs> New York's a Jewish town, and uh, there yeah. <laughs> were com- very many complaining Israelites about how long it took to part the Red <laughs> Sea. But, but, um, <laughs> but here, here's and I I have had a very intense observation watching the film, which was the the transformation of faith that took place for you, um, the declaration of faith that was for you. I watched the movie as let's just for sake of argument, I watched the movie as a Jew and um, representing a tradition that, if you will, wrestles with sacred texts um, and tries to make them, and tries to bring them to life in the world in which we live. And I, as a friend of and rabbi for Michael Waldman uh, from the Brennan Center, who is a great, uh, wrote a wonderful book about the Second Amendment and is a Second Amendment scholar, you know, I've never looked at the Second Amendment or the Constitution as a religious document, but as a civil document, in the way that much of the Talmudic tradition is both religious but also a civil document. Um, and so, what interests me is, and I thought you showed this so beautifully in the movie, uh, this tension between those who see the Second Amendment as a God given right. Um, and what it might mean for the framers to come back to us and say to us, "What, what are you doing with this re- interpretation of the document?" And yet, as a person of faith, you had such a profound religious uh, influence on uh, on Reverend Rob. So I, my my mind is spinning with uh, questions. And it's an interesting observation because
1: in in the '70s the leader of the NRA actually said that people would understand NRA members better if they viewed the NRA as a religion. Um, and, and, and I can't help, as I hear some of the rhetoric that, that comes out from the gun rights side of, of thinking that it sounds quite apocalyptic, um, one of the most moving parts of the film for me was... Um, uh, When the point was made that when the religious community or the moral community doesn't speak up, other forces come and fill the void. And it seems like that may have happened.
0: And and we had some time with the immediate past president of the NRA. It's not in the film, but we may do an op doc or something with him because it's really interesting. I said to him, you know, because we talked about the identity thing, you know, he talked about how. You know, he knows in any town he goes to, he's got friends. You know, all he has to do is wear his NRA hat and someone will introduce themselves and immediately they know everything they have in common. It sounds actually quite warm and lovely until you realize they're all packing. And, and, um, <laughs> but it does have that kind of totalizing quality that a, a faith tradition has. It has that kind of, yes, this shoots through every aspect of my life and it colors every decision that I make. And it's like a secret handshake. You know, it's it's the secret handshake that in Arizona and Alaska and everywhere, there's somebody there that knows and understands the word, world from where. And, and so I said to him, so so I get the feeling this isn't about guns at all for you guys, this is about a social vision. This is about social change and engineering a different kind of society, and he said yes. Now, I hadn't thought of that till I'd asked him. I never really kind of crossed my mind, but he answered it like, are you stupid? Of course it is. Um, and, and I thought that was interesting, because like there's a thought process happening inside of there that we're not privy to. It's it's totalizing and it's really quite well self segregated and even hermetic in the way it, it doesn't relate to the rest of the world and and it's important to understand that they have a vision for society and it involves um, a, a certain notion about independence the size of government I mean it's you know it overlaps almost totally with the very conservative discourse we're hearing now but you know if you look at the course of the NRA they've actually been three years out in front of the far right wing of the republic party for the last 30 years um they've been dragging the right wing along in in the pursuit of an idea of how it is that you structure a society that's not chaotic
2: and certainly part of that totalizing at an asterisk is a religious element and that's why for me this is a religious crisis and I would go so far as to agree in part with that assertion that it's a religion or should be viewed as a religion but I I would only do so as far as calling it a heresy. So in our community it is it is a heresy. It's a form of heresy which makes it a religious crisis and and that's part of the reason I think religious leaders must address it.
1: Um another Interesting thing that, that came up was how um, passionately the NRA and others invoke the Second Amendment. Um, and as a scholar of the Second Amendment, I um, I, 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 I often tell people that um, that the Second Amendment has not always meant what people today think it means, and in fact. The NRA, the first major federal firearms regulation that was passed in 1934, the NRA drafted it. Of um, The Second Amendment didn't come up in the conversation, and the leader of the NRA at the time said about people carrying concealable weapons, said, you know, that'd be a bad idea. I think that we should restrict it. We should you know, license it.
0: The, the NRA is a lot like the Taliban mm-hmm. in the sense that... <laughs> Um, the Taliban came along with a, a view of society and it was totalizing and a notion of how things should be structured. And they, they tried to make it seem a, a, a return to something ancient. But in fact, there was nothing ancient about their vision, this was a very modern phenomenon, and it didn't come from anywhere in the past, but they asserted it as though it were a harkening back to something. And that's what the NRA has done with the Second Amendment argument that they made, because they, no one was making that argument until the Black Panthers started making it. It came from the Black Panthers in the late 60s, and you bet when they asserted themselves and walked into the State House in California with shotguns, Ronald Reagan was signing gun control legislation in a big hurry and saying things like, there's no reason a reasonable person should be walking down the street with a loaded shotgun. That's what he was saying in 1968 as governor of California. So it really wasn't until, I mean, if you really look at what happened with the NRA, the the day it went on amphetamines and kind of went out of control was somewhere around the mid-90s, and the, the mid-90s was when they had taken this argument about the Second Amendment and really kind of developed it to the point where they could really crystallize it and pass it along. The internet was suddenly becoming a place to galvanize disparate groups, to bring oddball people out from all these little towns and make them feel like they belong to a group. There was a rise of a militia movement and there was the death of the Soviet Union and where were the John Birch Society gonna go with all that crazy energy that they had? The NRA benefited by and were also incredibly smart about pulling all of these historical traditions together and they all came together kind of right at the moment when this analysis about the Second Amendment inside of the halls of the NRA was just getting crystallized. And so, it's, for them, it's treated like, you know, this has always been the way it is, and that's the way they like to tell us it is. But no, this is an incredibly new interpretation of the Second Amendment that they've spent a lot of money cultivating.
1: And it, and it also doesn't, a lot of times, people think that the Second Amendment is what is stopping reasonable gun laws. And even in today's day and age when a lot of, uh, when the NRA and, and, and some judges think that the Second Amendment broadly restricts government from regulating firearms, um, courts generally don't agree with that. In fact, in 2008, there was an important decision, which for the first time in over 200 years, the Supreme Court in a split decision, this was District of Columbia v. Heller, the court said that the Second Amendment protects your right to have a handgun in your home for self-defense, even though previously it had generally been understood as a militia-related right. But the court went to great extent to say this doesn't cast doubt on other gun laws. And since then, I think there have been over 900 challenges since 2008, and the courts have rejected 94% of them. Um, and, and this gets back to the, to the main issue that I think is addressed so well in the movie, which is that this isn't really, even though the Second Amendment is invoked a lot, it has more rhetorical punch than it does constitutional punch. Um, it's not so much of an obstacle um, to, to gun law. What's, what, what, what's really an obstacle is public sentiment. So the question is, how do you change public sentiment? And how do you address this deep-seated fear that makes people want to carry a gun in order to um, feel safer?
4: In the work that i do now i have evolved into this gun violence prevention advocate and we have learned in our organization every town for gun safety and moms demand in action for guns Sense in america i have got to get that plug in there yeah. okay
3: um, say it say it slower okay, okay. please every, every because maybe town, people don't realize
4: yeah every town for gun safety stop
3: every town
4: for gun that's, safety that's at
3: every town on twitter Exactly. And it's an amazing organization, so that's good. Go.
4: And the grassroots Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. Moms
3: demand action. That's What
4: we what we have learned is that it's a matter of changing the verbiage. If you, you know, if you say gun control, we're controlling the guns in the country you know, no pun intended, everybody automatically, you know, oh my gosh. So it's a matter of disarming them with the verbiage and getting them to understand that it's not trying to control you, but it's a matter of having some kinds of sensible laws put in place that protect individuals that are using their guns. So we say it is actually gun violence prevention. It's not gun control.
3: Can, can I? say something i i here's an here's another thought uh interesting and i'm curious to hear the two of you that is to say abigail and rob talk about uh this directorial decision to show rob learning i'm assuming that's is that the first time you shot a gun yes yes uh, yes yeah Mm -hmm. so that was that was profound Okay, because that to me that was like okay, I know how this movie's going to end, mm-hmm. uh, because on a certain level, uh, as a person of conscience and as a person of faith, you said to yourself, okay, this is a this is a tool that can kill. What's my responsibility in relationship to this? And you don't come off as an anti-gun person, but you really you do come off as a person who represents a, a responsible relationship to a weapon which I totally respect, and unless I'm misunderstanding you. Um, but let me just finish my thought quickly, and then, and then, oh, not bad. So here's the thing, is that we, I don't know that I necessarily agree with your timeline. We ended the draft, and in ending the draft in this country, we bequeathed only to gun owners the experience of what it means to be trained to kill. And therefore, you know, and, and what it means to understand the right to bear arms as a expression of citizenship. I, I worry about, th- I'm a total liberal, I've only, and will only vote for Democrats, so I'm just going to say that, but I do believe that one of the greatest mistakes our country ever made was ending the draft and not asking people to serve a, as a duty of citizenship. And, and so I, I throw that out there because I'd like to hear you guys respond to that.
0: It's, it's a greater mistake than just, I never thought of it in this sense about gun experience with guns. Um, that's actually a really important thing that you're saying, and especially because most people who've been on active duty and have used their guns in combat come back and say, okay, I'd like to see some gun controls here. And ironically, a guy in the Army is more controlled and more regulated in terms of when and how he uses firearm than any citizen, which is crazy making. Um, but, but the other reason the draft you know, it also relieved almost everybody of the obligation of fighting combat. We won't ever have a Vietnam-type uprising of citizenry because my kids aren't going to war, your kids aren't going to war, you know, it's just this sliver of the pop, we're not all feeling it. Unless we all get taxed, unless we all send our sons off, we're never gonna have a rising of, of popular sentiment against war again. And that scares the hell out of me.
2: Uh, we're going to share a mic because this okay. microphone has informed me dead battery. It literally <laughs> says that dead battery. It
0: has enough of a it's battery to it tell it's dead. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Nothing nuanced about it. Um, you, just as a little sidebar point of interest, you, you may find it interesting. The reason I hesitated on whether that was my first experience shooting a weapon was because I had gone for a subsequent training at NRA headquarters at the, their official range, which is highly regulated. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing experience. It is a highly regulated environment. It was almost intimidating. All the cameras, the supervision, the security panels, uh, the way you have to approach, even unload your weapons from the vehicle, there are warning signs and uh, and, and lights everywhere. It is a highly regulated environment. I just want to <laughs> emphasize that. Just thought, that's for your amusement.
0: But you know, the other reason it was important for him to shoot the gun is, is also to acknowledge that... You know, it's really fun and awesome and that's actually a bigger thing we're up against than we always acknowledge because some people, a lot of people, resent this whole conversation because this is their pastime. This is what they do. They enjoy it and, you know, I enjoy a lot of things. If my water skiing were, you know, causing the deaths of many thousands of people, I might. Consider another hobby, but nevertheless, um, it is a very important hobby and pastime for a lot of people, and you do have to acknowledge that. I mean, because we liberals have a tendency to get all doer and angry and little old ladyish and lecture people about things, and and uh, and that's one of the like PC, politically correct, sort of grandma slapping you on the knuckles kind of thing that they hate.
2: Can I go back just for a minute? We were talking about terminology. Lucy, you made that point of changing the language. And in my community, which Abby can tell you better, our statistics, I, I, I know they're not good. <laughs> but she knows them uh, in detail. Thank you. And um, I assiduously avoid the term gun control. I, I talk about self-control because for us as evangelical Christians a virtue, there is a virtue, a what is referred to in the New Testament as a fruit of the Holy Spirit, uh, which is self-control. So I talk about that and also in the pro-life community we talk about appealing to a higher moral law. It doesn't matter what uh, the law or the Constitution is interpreted to say we appeal to a higher moral law. So I've challenged my people on that and not employ legislative or policy language because there is an immediate defensive response to that. And I think that's what you were talking about, re- relaxing that defense and, and that way finding a, a path into the soul and into the conscience
1: One of the one of the comments um, that that came up in one of the meetings that you had in the film was that. But isn't it ethical to have a gun and to carry it around to protect your family? Um, So, what is your response to people who say that? Who say that they're and and they might point to biblical passages about defending your family? Um, What's the response to the people who thinks that think that this is good ethics?
4: There's one point in your discussion with one of the pastors, and he says, well, you know, the Bible says that if a man doesn't protect his family, it doesn't say that. The Bible says if he doesn't provide for his family. So that's, you know, that's a misnomer, and that's a very important (laughs) mistake, (laughs) and I say all the time, provide for, you know, and provide for doesn't mean I mean, it doesn't mean, you know, you're carrying your gun and your pistol around to provide protection for your family. That's just completely uh, diametrically opposed to the word of God.
2: Amazing how quickly our folks who would uh, mostly, uh, you know, uh, consider themselves to be literalists will abandon their literalism.
3: In the moment of convenience. I I was trained as a student of history. Uh, Ronald Reagan was never a religious person. Um, And, you know, I'm sorry. And, you know, you're you're the filmmaker, and there was, you know, that you captured a moment. And uh, if the film could have been a half hour longer and I would have been your, your advisor, I would have said, just make sure you point out this is an important transitional moment where Reagan really figured out that he could capture evangelicals that could put him into power, he was not a religious person, no, but he, he used saw. that. He saw that that was a tool to power. I'm just curious.
0: Yeah, I mean, and by the way, as a side note, my uncle made the Morning in America commercial because <laughs> he was an advertising executive who <laughs> worked for Ronald Reagan, yeah. Oh, God. Um, so, um, but I just want to go back to this thing about the ethics of defending your family with a gun because it's really an important point. Um, you know, you hear a lot of things in that thing. And I guess, you know, on first blush, it does look, oh, yes, gosh, then I better have a gun because I, what kind of person wouldn't protect his family except that, you know, you're 43 times more likely to have it deployed against yourself or someone you love than to ever use it in self-defense and so forth. Well, the problem is that the NRA has invested heavily in people like John Lott and others who have filled the environment with easily refuted but nevertheless persistent sets of information that are in, in opposition to, to really reliable you know, public health resources that have done this analysis. So every fact is contested. Now if you're an ethical person and you're carrying an object that has the capacity for you to, from on this side of the room with very little training or skill, or even physical prowess end a life over there. I would say that you won't wanna have all of the best information about the ramifications of what they're doing. Um, The one that I keep sitting on is the, the guy who says, What if I see a child being pushed into a van? And, you know, with the the gun people, the the hypotheticals are always, you know, very extreme, and your mother's being raped by seven people, and, you know, there's always something like, when does that happen? So I I just wanted to, it was really one of those moments when I had a hard time not speaking. I really had a hard time not speaking, Um, (laughs) because... I just like have you seen a child being pushed into a van how often does that happen is that really some this town seems quiet for that and <laughs> if 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 you see a child being pushed into a van can you really tell me the gun is the best instrument to cause that situation to conclude well are you really going to fire your gun in the direction of the child and the man, you know, or do you have a pencil to write down his phone number? Do you have your voice to shout for help? Do you have a phone to call the police? Do you have your body to go over and help the child? And and what happens if you have the gun on your hip is you go right to the gun. There are fifty pieces of of tree on that decision tree that you've just skipped past, that that took you straight to this ultimate, this defining. You know this I call it ontology in the palm of your hands it's uh, someone's being is at stake, whether they're bad or not, and you're skipping right to the worst possible outcome. It kills your imagination. the gun kills your imagination and and i I keep referring to chekhov who who um who said if there's a gun on the mantelpiece in the first act, it has to go off by the third act, and I know he's talking about storytelling, but I think we have a gun on our mantelpiece, you know. It, t- it sucks all the energy in, you know, you can't look at anything but the gun because of the power of its latent, you know, capacity, that that is so enormous and, and totalizing, and so, you know, you have to have the gun go off at some point. Um, and so America has a gun on the mantelpiece, and it's dumbed us down. We've brought none of the creative qualities that we always tell, talk about in American society—that we're inventive, we have ingenuity, we can invent our way out of any problem. Where, where's the stun gun from Star Trek? You know, where, where's you know, where are the non-violent, non-lethal answers? you know, that provide us a few more limbs on the decision tree before we get to the part where we end someone else's life, even if they're a bad person, even if they deserve it. So, so one of the reasons I took a faith approach to this is because this is ontology. This, these are ultimate questions of life and death. And we're talking about them as they're making my day. <laughs> you know, the yippee I mean, there's a pleasure and a, you know, kind of delight in the idea, the prospect of engaging in this, ending someone's life. I, I just don't understand that. What happened to people who dreaded taking life? What happened to the appropriate level of disgust as that as an option? Um,
4: I just want to say, real quickly, too, and, and of course, you know, the dynamics of what actually went on with both of our trials. Nobody knows except us, we were there. But in a lot of the, um, testimony that was coming out from even some of Michael Dunn's uh, neighbors is that there again he always talked about the power of the gun and he could not wait to use the gun so there again, that very thing that you're talking about, the gun just that, that, that false sense of bravado and you know, I'm empowered and I'm in charge and I'm in th- authority and I'm going to put everyone in their place by the intimidation that I can use on them with the gun.
1: You, made a, you, you had a great statement in the, in the film, which is that firearms are, people deceive themselves to thinking that they can somehow control, I'm paraphrasing and maybe butchering, but deceive themselves to think that they can control things if they have a gun, rather than accepting the uncontrollable, um, the unknown out there.
2: Which, when you asked, you know, how do I respond to that assertion that, you know, it's my moral obligation to protect my wife and children is usually how it's phrased. How, how do i deal with that one way is listening and 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 honoring the feelings that are behind that which which is important and and i'd like to say that my religious sensibilities inform that but that wouldn't be true it's the therapy sessions i've been through to be honest <laughs> and it's being married to a, a psychotherapist which really helps me um, and and just listening and affirming those emotions because they are they are real and the fear factor is very real and and simply affirming that and letting people vent it and and honoring it is a very important part of the process because i found when when i shut them down as many of us know that's an invitation for it to just become more stubborn, so I've, I've a lot of it is listening, and uh, and I'd like to think that 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 part of it is informed largely by my Jewish heritage is is listening, and and listening to the arguments and affirming all the parties and then helping them to bring religious resolution, and there is a way to do that because. I, I rely on the Bible. I go. You know, one of the definitions of evangelicalism is that the Bible is the full and final authority for all matters of faith and practice. So I go to the Bible, which says we're to live at peace with all people, that we're to prefer one another as better than ourselves, that we're to love our enemies and even do good to those who persecute us. And when you put that in a historical context, the challenge was immense to the early Christians. So that's a, a compressed answer to that difficult question.
1: Thank you.
4: I will say from the perspective of actually being the only minority in the film, um, I think that um, we really have done it the right way. Because if you begin to polarize people with the, the, the gun rhetoric, gun violence prevention, gun control. I mean, it it can be very, very polarizing. Now, absolutely, we know without a doubt that disproportionately our communities are affected more by gun violence. We know that. But I think the dynamic I always say is this, is that we will get help to help solve the problems, The minority community is going to be an active part in that. We already know that because it's our survival that we're talking about. But it's a matter of putting that dynamic of black and white aside to go to the heart of man. That's extremely important because the heart of man doesn't care whether you're black or white. You know, when you're talking about faith, and, and belief in, in the common good in the heart of man—it doesn't recognize whether you're black or white. And we absolutely need the white evangelical community to to recognize their heart again, to recognize their moral responsibility. Our people—we're going to fight. We're going to be in the fight because we know if we don't fight, we won't survive. But it's crucial for us to engage the communities that are not like us because they're the ones that need to understand morally and ethically what is happening in the country and they're playing behind their religion as a means of validating what they're doing. Our, for generations, you know, our people have been loving, accepting, and forgiving, Our people have never advocated taking guns in the street, you know, to, to get our way. We've never been that way. So I think we've done it the right way. I think we represent every aspect of this walk that needs to be taken. A man of faith, he's a shepherd. She's a woman of peace, she's a peacemaker. And I'm Jordan's mama.
1: Yes. so unfortunately we, we do not have more time for questions however the film opens tomorrow the
0: film opens tomorrow night it's going to be at the landmark sunshine theater and uh the amc on 42nd street um you know how well we make this case to evangelicals will ride very much on how well we show up Um, We really need an opening weekend. We really need help from you guys, because if we get a good opening weekend, we continue to open. I mean, we're opening in 20 cities, including Colorado Springs, and Evansville, and Fayetteville, and Dallas, and Jacksonville, and Orlando. We're going to the places where evangelicals are. I need your help. I need you to tweet your brains out. I need you to Facebook this, and I need you to get everybody you ever met, ever, to go to the film and, you know, make sure that people in the cities do and come to the website and make sure people know that if it didn't come to their towns, they can always set up a screening from our website.
2: Talk to your born-again friends.
0: And if
3: you are a person who believes in direct action, I want to point out Leah Barrett, the Executive Director of New Yorkers Against Gun Violence, We push very hard to change gun laws. If you want to get involved and do some practical work to make change in this city and in this state, talk to Leah, and thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.